Today is October 24th, 2020, and you are listening to Sam Walking in the World, episode 28, the fastest growing podcast in all of Knoll Top Terrace. And as always, these are the thoughts of a guy who used to be unhappy, just trying to live like the way he wants to be when he dies. Guten Tag, hi hurrah, ni hao, top of the morning, and a big fat hello to all my devoted listeners throughout four continents and both hemispheres. I'm very grateful to you all, and as always, I'm thrilled as ever to hear you listening to the sound of my voice. Now, I have a packed episode. I'm giggling a little bit because I just listened to a soundbite from Keith Oberman. I don't know if you remember him from ESPN, but at some point he turned to politics, which is cool, but... Then, at another point, he has gone around the bend. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Keith Oberman and uh, the hardcore Trump haters uh, later on in politics. But I was just listening to it. I can't help how how nuts that man has become. Unless it's just a shtick. But I don't know. He sounds... uh, I have a soundbite for you. So it'll be the first soundbite I have ever put in the show. But it's worth it. It'll be uh, a good inaugural soundbite. But anyway, I have a lot to talk about um, in politics, of course, because of how much is going on. But I also have a bunch of other stuff that's kind of cropped up in my mind over the last week. Um, I'm going to talk about how I've lost a little bit of weight and what that means for how I dress. I'm going to talk about how uh, how important it is sometimes to have the courage to be wrong. I was wrong recently about something, and uh, it, was, it was kind of wailing on my conscience and... Uh, so I, uh, I did a lot of thinking about it that I'm going to share with you. Um, and I have a new smartwatch. It's um, an Active 2. It's, uh, it can work with any kind of you know, Android or Apple, but um, I'm a, kind of a Google person. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that because it's got all the bells and whistles. And particularly, I want to talk about how it counts steps. Everyone's getting their steps in. And uh, I have that feature on it. And I, I didn't think I would care about it or use it pay attention to it, but it turns out that I am. And a problem that has arisen because of it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about things on television, uh, some campaign commercials that I believe have gone on too long, um, and some fantasies I have about how they might end. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, some something that happened at school when I was working on my free period, and I was just listening to what was going on in the hall, and it reminded me of how happy I am to be a teacher. Um... And I'm going to talk about some lifey stuff. Um, I don't want to get into all of it here until I really get into it. But um, uh, Also, someone needs to invent a word for the act of forgetting your mask in your car and having to go back to your car from like just about to walk into a store and having to go back through the parking lot to your car. That needs a word. I don't know. I'll give you an idea of what I'm thinking of, but uh, someone could probably do better if they want to call in. And then in politics, of course, I'm going to talk about the final presidential debate. Um, Some things that I've heard said on the stump. And, of course, this juicy Keith Oberman soundbite that is just, I can't, every time I think of it, I can't believe it. So crazy. Um, So uh, without further ado, I will get to the first thing. And that is I have lost some weight. I have a tape measure. I, I've i been meaning to do this, but I haven't, and I've just been putting it off, kind of because I know that each day I put it off, I'm probably going to get better news. But I took the tape measure, and I measured my waistline. 
about where my pants would go. Not like my belly button, but like a little bit below it, like where my pants would naturally go. And I have lost five inches off my waist. And I'm still big, you'll see. I mean, uh, I have a 40-inch waist still. I'm so embarrassed to say that, but I do. Um, but I had a 46-inch waist, like 46 and a half. When I make the tape measure, when I put the tape measure to 46 inches and look at how round it is, I'm like, oh, my God, I've seen trees that are smaller. Well, of course, I've seen trees that are smaller. I meant big trees that are smaller. All right, I don't know where I'm going with that, but uh, I've lost five inches. And uh, I'm going to tell you something about myself that, you know, I guess I don't mind. Um, but uh, you might think a little bit less of me, but I buy pants at Goodwill. Yep, I buy pants at Goodwill. And then I'm not ashamed to admit it. I think the reason I do is because I kind of like the pants that old people used to wear. And I have a feeling that a lot of the pants that I wear are like from old men. Like I picture like old Italian men that always wore dress pants. Like no matter what, even if they had like a white tank top on, they would have like a belt and dress pants on. And um, most of them are pleated. I don't know why I like pleats. But I buy them there because they cost like $7. And I buy colors that you can pretty much wear with anything like black and gray. And um, sometimes I know they're suit bottoms and I just don't care about the rest of the suit. So I buy the pants. And I think it's because I don't want to have to care about them. When you're short, almost all of your pants end up dragging on the ground. And there's really not much you can do about it. I mean, I guess I could go to a tailor, but I just don't care. And I feel like if I get down to the sh to you know to the size I want to be, I'll people will notice more that I'm in shape than they will what kind of pants I have on. I feel like it's the fitness of the body that makes the clothes look good. I don't think it's the clothes that make the body look good. Now, when they're both nice, well, that's fairly nice, but I just don't care enough. So anyway, we're at forty inches, like forty and a half inches. So I'll keep you posted on the rest. I know you're all interested in how fat I was and am. But that's that. Um, okay, I'm gonna get to the courage to accept being wrong. Now, sometimes I'm too weird for my own good. I don't do it intentionally, but I just I have a, a take on the world that I think is less conventional than most people. So something that would make sense to me might seem strange or weird to somebody else. And I'm not going to get into details, but that happened recently. And I was hurt because I did something that offended somebody. And I didn't mean any offense, but that really isn't the most important thing. Um, I don't think I don't think all of the onus ought to be on how it's taken. As I've said before in uh, previous episodes, you can't spend your life worrying about how every how one person out of a hundred might take something that you say, so you better not say it. I'd rather have everybody just kind of say whatever it is, and then everyone can decipher which parts they like and which parts they don't like. But anyway, I was wrong, and I got to thinking about it, and it really weighed on my mind. For a couple days. And th this is the kind of the thought process I think, I think not just me, but I think people go through when they've done something that they know is, find out is wrong or hurt someone or offended someone. Not terribly, but, you know, kind of incidentally. 
And at first, if the first reaction is always to be like, who the hell are they? Who are, they don't know me. Who are they to say that? And then immediately, like, something about them. They're too conventional. You know, they're too critical. They're too judgmental. And it's just an automatic bristle that I think is, is automatic. And, um, and then, but, but at the same time, I like the people that I offended. So, you know, that instinct to be like, screw them. I, I don't want to screw them. I want to continue to have a good relationship with them because I like them. So it forces me to have to kind of, you know, take a look at what I did. And then I think this is the key here. If you can do this, if I can do this, I feel like I'm able to continue growing. To make a moderate correction without resenting the corrector, but also without allowing it to tear like at completely at the fabric of who I've kind of worked to be, who I think of myself as. You know, I don't want my identity to be a, a Jenga pile. Where if something is one thing, something is pulled out, then the whole thing crumbles. You know, I've, I've taken the time to build my identity with conscientious choices, I believe. And so I feel like I kind of have a solid foundation and a reservoir of self-esteem. To the point where if I lose some in a particular instance, it's okay. But to... To, to make a moderate correction without resenting the corrector is not an easy thing to do. Even just if it's someone that you're close to, whose opinion that you value. Um, but, you know, to do that and not start questioning yourself as a whole. Well, I guess I'm, I guess I'm a loser. Or I guess I'm just stupid. Or I guess I'm not who I thought I was. Just to confidently accept imperfections and then try to improve on them. Use them to inform my next choice in a similar circumstance such as that. And it's not easy. It looked, took, took me like a day and a half of really mulling over it. And I, what, I was really, what I really had to do was let go of my resentment. And, and then I, once I did that, I was able to be like, well, you know what? Even if I did do that, that's really not that big a deal. You know, that, that's, that's one ground out in a batting average of many at-bats. So that's what I have to say about having the courage to accept being wrong. Now, let me get onto my watch. So I have this smartwatch, and it does a lot of things. It goes on the Internet. It can take phone calls. I don't even need to go into it. Everyone probably has already had one before me. I've been behind the curve on every single piece of technology. Like I was the last one of my friends to get a cell phone, even like those old flip phones with the big green letters on them before you could even take pictures. But I was like a total landline guy, answering machine and all. And so I finally, even laptops. I was like, laptops with your fancy laptops going around, carrying your computer around. Who needs that? But anyway, I've, I've, in each case, I've eventually got with the program. And I fight that, that feeling, I think, that old people get to, to automatically presume you're going to be overwhelmed by the new device or the new technology. When the truth is, they keep making them easier. So anyway, I got my watch, and it counts steps. And I kind of like the idea of knowing that I walked, a, you know, a long distance over the course of my day. Like, I, I never used to count all of that as exercise or, you know, as time spent burning calories. 
And now, now I have this luxury of being able to know that. Except here's the problem. I don't always like to wear my watch. Right? I'll leave it somewhere when I go do something. And I'm walking the whole time I'm without my watch. And I start thinking to myself, these steps aren't being counted. I'm going to have a false total. So and then, so I said, oh, you know, I'm just going to start wearing it wherever I go. And then I forgot to do it. And I went somewhere and I walked a really long way. I had to walk at least a mile. And uh, the whole time I was thinking, man, I wish I had my watch on. Not so I knew what time it was, but so that it would properly record my steps. And I actually had the thought when I got home, I, I, put my, I put my watch on and I was like, oh, well, you know what? I just got to get better at wearing it if this is really a feature that I want to use. And then my wife was like, okay, I'm going to walk the dog. And I was like, hmm. Hmm. I was this close to asking my wife to wear my watch on her walk so that I could recoup the steps I lost when I was not wearing it. That is stupid, as I said. But that's me. All right, when I get back, I'm going to talk a little bit about some television commercial campaigns that I'd like to see end tragically. Um, uh, but let me uh, grab a glass of water, and I'll be back after this. Hello, and welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 28. The message was brought to you by the Milkman. Now, I want to talk about Keith Olbermann. I remember Keith Olbermann from ESPN Sports Center. And I, I might have just been the time of my life that I was watching it or just that it was really cool. But it was like the first time you ever had like witty people talking about sports. And there was this group of them. And it was like they had they had little shticks that were really funny. And Keith Olbermann was one of them. I remember Craig Kilborn was one of them. And um, God, a lot of the names slipped my mind. But it was like they were really, really funny. And um, and then a lot of them went on to other things. I remember Craig Kilborn actually was the first host of The Daily Show before Jon Stewart. A lot of people forget that for the first season, if you remember Craig Kilborn. <clears throat> He's a pretty funny guy. But so was Keith Olbermann. And uh, I think as, as most people do, eventually you kind of, as you get older, you go on to more serious things. You want to think about, talk about, contemplate, share more serious things. And politics is one of those things. And so we kind of went into politics on MSNBC and he had a show for a while and they, he was gradually kind of growing more radical. And I know there are radicals on the right. Okay. I'll say this is might offend some of my conservative friends, but sometimes I just can't listen to Sean Hannity. I tend to agree with him ideologically and I tend to agree with like his understanding of events, but it's just, it's just brutal sometimes he repeats himself and he's he just i just feel like his show is for people that i hate to say this but not very bright like people that need to hear the same thing said seven times everyone's got a crazy nickname that he has to say every time he says their name like no experience hunter biden that's not even an adjective anyway Keith Olbermann has kind of gone that far on the left and even further. And he has this apocalyptic um, take on things to the point where it's like, you, you got to know you're, you're nuts. Or maybe you don't know you're nuts and that's what makes you nuts. 
But I got to play a, a clip for you where he's talking about Trump and Trump supporters. And I imagine, like, are there, because I know there are lots of people that like Sean Hannity. And I'm sure I probably offended some of them. But, I'm, uh, you know, he, he's got his little posse. And I wonder if, if like, Oberman has a posse. And they get jacked up when he when his show comes on, and they share his intensity. And I was just imagining it. But let me let me play the clip first, and then um, I will talk about it. So this is Keith Overman two weeks ago. So let us brace ourselves. The task is twofold. The terrorist Trump must be defeated, must be destroyed, must be devoured at the ballot box. And then he and his enablers and his supporters and his collaborators and the Mike Lees and the William Barrs and the Sean Hannity's and the Mike Pence's and the Rudy Giuliani's and the Kyle Rittenhouse's and the Amy Coney Barrett's must be prosecuted and convicted and removed from our society while we try to rebuild it. I can't stop laughing thinking about that. But what what I further keeps on making me laugh is like I imagine, like because I I I consider myself on the right, and I, I I've like I said I've gotten tired of of Sean Hannity, and I imagine like the Keith Elberman posse, like one of them like starting to kind of sour a little bit on how nuts he's gone, and like he, he like he's watching that segment of Keith Overman ranting and he's like imagining his most jacked up buddy like the most enthusiastic guy in the Overman posse like he knows he's watching it too and like the guy's about to come over to his house cuz he wants to talk about it so he like turns his lights off and he, sure enough like there's a knock at the door and he he answers the door and the guy's like dude did you hear Overman and he's like yeah i saw it i saw it he's like come on let's go he's like, where are we going He's like, we're gonna go ripping up Trump signs, man. We're gonna we're gonna root out the witches. And the guy's like, um, the game's on. You know, I got my pajamas on, and you know, I haven't even sharpened my pitchfork since the last debate. So we have plenty, man, dude. We got plenty. Plus, we need somebody to carry the torches. Oh, you know, my arm, my shoulder kind of hurts. I was playing tennis earlier and i kind of think i'm gonna tweak my elbow so i don't know if i can carry a torch right now besides like environmentally like do we really want to use kerosene i mean isn't that part of our thing dude you're disappointing me man you're disappointing me oh i gotta go sorry man maybe another time <laughs> Uh, anyway, with that, I will take a short break, and I'll be back. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 28. Okay, now it's time to talk politics. First, something that is driving me crazy. It is a myth. And if you think about it, I think you'll agree with me. Um, uh, I spoke in a previous episode about undecided voters. How everyone pays all kinds of attention to them, especially late in an election season. A couple weeks out, week out from the election. Everything you see is about undecided voters. Which way are they going to swing? They are going to decide the election. And they just, they just relish the significance that they have. But I told you in a previous episode, I think that they are not the most intelligent, or maybe not intelligent, but not the most informed. No, I mean not intelligent voters um 
And this is one of the constant themes I hear all of them say. <clears throat> it is, I just wish that we would stop all this backbiting and sniping and like we would just, you know, be united. Like I'm looking for which candidate will be a better uniter. Like, you know, like bring us all together because things are just, we're just so divided and I wish there was someone that could bring us together. Now that sounds great. You know, it sounds like very kumbaya, except tell me how it could happen. You know, you have, you have, the dynamic tends to be people have things that they believe, policies that they would like to see, laws they would like to see. And, and based on those, they, they choose which candidate they want to be president. How often does the candidate cause us to feel a certain way about policies or our, our ideas or our deeply held beliefs? How often does the person, because that's what it would take in order for us to be united, in order for people on the left and people on the right to suddenly agree on policy. That's what it would take in order for us to be united. If that's what they mean by united, if they mean we would all agree on, on what direction we want the country to go, but we just don't. And so I think that the, the, the candidate we select is downstream from our politics. Our politics are not created by the candidate, by saying nice things and saying we're all Americans. Because they all say we're, we're not red states and blue states, we're just the United States. And then they bash whichever side they're not. Which is fine with me. I mean, I understand that there's a delineation between the two sides and the kinds of beliefs that red state people tend to have and blue state people tend to have. At least in the majority in the state. But it, it just, it, it, it is completely a myth and it is definitely one, it's evidence that the people who claim to be undecided are really just virtue signaling. Look at me, I wait till the last second and I let the person that I see at the microphone and the message that they have tell me. I mean, you you got to be under a rock for four years in order for that to be the case. Now, at the same time, I believe we are united. We might vote for different candidates, but like I said, I don't think that means that we're 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 divided. I think it means that we're balanced. But we are united in a very important way, and that's like in our actual daily lives. Most people don't get into giant blowout arguments about politics. They understand to steer away from it with your friends or with, you know, people that you want to maintain good relationships with because you just, like I've said, you can't tell how far from you a person will be politically, even though they're very, very close to you in terms of the way they live their life and what appear to be their immediate values, their faith, um, you know, their, their positions on various issues. Actually, not that. <laughs> their, their actual daily life, not their positions. Sometimes their positions and issues are, are far removed from their daily life and the way that they choose to live. Um, but like, you know, I think about yesterday, I, I was out in the world and I must have, I, I probably ran into at least 50 people in personal encounters one-on-one, -on -one, whether it was in a store or in a line or in a parking lot or um, in traffic even, even though I don't see them face-to-face -face in traffic, that is an interaction. And like, a guy stopped and let me in, in traffic, waved me in. Um, in, in lines, I make chit-chat with people, and I'm, you know, I 
I feel like I'm a friendly person. They're friendly back. Um, I, I, I make eye contact with people and I nod. And, I, and in a sense, I guess un, in an unspoken way, that's where I consider us all Americans. We're all people living in this free society where most people are happy. That's where we're united. So these people that try to say they want a person that's going to unite us, then we're already united. Yes, we're balanced, but we are united. So so if you're out there and you are claiming to be an undecided voter, I guarantee you couldn't pass a 10-question quiz about basic civics. Sorry, that sounds insulting, but really, really, if you're considering yourself undecided, then I, I bet you're not even listening to this. I like to think more highly of my audience. Okay, anyway, um, I'm going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to get into more politics. Um, I'm going to particularly, I'm going to talk about some of the things that I heard at the debate, and I'll start with, um, I'll start with the conversation. I mean, the, the question that the mediator, who I thought did a great job, uh, the question the mediator asked about about race in America, and she asked about what she what what each candidate would say to that parent of color who would have to have the talk with their child as they were getting ready to go out into the world, whether it be driving or, or what. So I'll talk about that after I get back from this break. Hi, this is a great podcast. Everybody should listen to it. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World. That was Hayden, a man in a boy's body. And now we'll get on to this. I will again wade into the treacherous waters of race. Uh, again, I, I like to preface this with saying I mean no offense to anyone. I love all kinds of people. This is simply just my analysis of events based on my experience in the world. So, the moderator asked both candidates how they would approach uh, a person of color who had to have the talk. Now, the talk essentially is, um, I guess, a warning, um, a a cautionary instruction that we are to presume people have to give their children, if they're people of color, that they have to give their children about going out into the world and the likelihood of what might happen to them because they are a person of color, The, the, the chances of them getting into an encounter with with law enforcement that would be dangerous to them and what in particular they need to be wary of when they go out into the world. Unless I'm wrong, I believe that is the talk. And and Joe Biden, in response to this, said, it's a shame that people have to, that, that in, in 2020, that, that people are treated so differently that an, an African-American parent had, would have to tell their child, give them a particular warning that they, you know, that they need to keep their hands on the wheel and in plain sight, that they need to not reach into the glove box, that they need to say yes or no, sir. Otherwise, bad things might happen. And then I'm sure it's it, it, it resonates with a lot of people because of the things that we've seen recently in the news. The rash of, of incidents that have been highlighted and covered by the news of, of uh, tragic things happening to African Americans. 
um, when when uh, coming into contact with police. But I'd like to delve a little bit deeper into it. And again, I mean no offense. Um, and I could be wrong, too. That's a, like I said earlier in the episode. My caveat is that I could be wrong, but I don't mean any ill intent. So let me just kind of run through this as I thought about it. Does the talk presume that you should teach your kids of color to expect police brutality? That's the first question that's important to ask ourselves. Would you convey to your child that they should expect police brutality? Were they to be out and about in public driving or even if they were to be pulled over for something or have you went through, you know, had drove through a, a check police checkpoint or ended up in, a, in an incidental encounter with the police. Should they expect police brutality? And to, to presuppose that a police officer has pulled you over because of your race or is inquiring something about what you're doing or where you are or things like that, would you instruct your child to presuppose that the police officer has pulled you over because of your race? And I don't know. I'm just I'm just I'm just asking. But I know this statistically, and, and this is where the this is where people's opinions tend to diverge, and where they they end up stopping hearing each other sometimes. But this is what I believe to be facts in evidence. Statistically, a police officer is extremely unlikely to use excessive force, first against anyone and also against people of color. Okay, if you look at all the statistics of police encounters, times people are pulled over, times people are questioned, times people are stopped or have any kind of incidental or intentional interaction with the police, it is extremely unlikely that there will be excessive force or even force even less likely there will be excessive force. And so I, I just want to talk quickly about instances that have been highlighted publicly recently. What has kind of caused this discussion to end up in the forefront and become very high on the list of some people's, um, you know, issues that they consider most important. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, in every single instance yet to be highlighted publicly that I can think of, and I could be wrong, there could be one or two in there, but I can't, as I was thinking this, I couldn't think of any. But in every instance yet to be publicly highlighted, there has been another extenuating variable present that would not be, I would guess, that would not be in a hypothetical scenario that you, the listener, if you happen to be of color or people in general of color, that there would be another extenuating variable present in a hypothetical scenario that you would propose would not be, would not be in, in the scenario you would propose to your child during the talk. And just about every one of these ones that we've, that have come to national prominence and attention, there's been another extenuating variable. Let me just give you some examples. I'm not going to go back into each particular incident that occurred. Um, you know, I think it's important to say their names, so to speak, um, but uh, partly because I can't, 
I, I don't know them all exactly, um, and partly because I've said their names, people have said their names. But in each of the other extenuate in, in each of the other scenario, scenarios, there has been an extenuating circumstance such as behaviors <clears throat> behaviors that warranted being pulled over, like speeding or reckless driving or being asleep in a drive-through. That caused the interaction and the suspicion on the part of the cops. There have been outstanding warrants for arrest. There have been resisting arrest or outright force against the police officer at the moment of arrest. There's been erratic or drug-induced behavior. There's been reported domestic abuse by the person being abused and or rape by the person being raped or that had just been. There's been people breaking orders of protection that have been reported by the person who feels like they're, they're in danger. And in general, there's been an act of any crime for which a victim is called the police. And then, most of all, being armed with a weapon. An unlicensed firearm or a knife being brandished at the moment of encounter with the police. So I got to ask, when you have the talk with your child, or when a person has a talk with your child, should we presume that that any of these other conditions are present? Or is the child simply going about their day? We're led to believe, I think, we're led to believe there's a rash of these incidents where this is the case, where people are just going about their day. Is merely a person walking or driving down the street and racially motivated police brutality is likely to occur to the point where you'd have to have a talk with your child, the way you'd have a talk about not shoplifting. Not only is that not borne out statistically, in recent events, it's not been borne out anecdotally. I urge you to think of the incidences that have come to national prominence recently and, and ask yourself, has there been one or more of those extenuating variables. And if those are present in your child or the hypothetical person having the talk, then there's another issue there going on. Something else that also needs to be discussed with the child about their behavior or their habits. So if not, if not, if those circumstances are not presupposed in your scenario, then the talk ought to be very close to the same talk every child should be given when going out into the world. And I think back to the words Biden actually said, and I thought to myself, why in the world would that not apply to every single person? I apply it to myself. Should I be pulled over by a cop? Shouldn't every parent tell their children when they're pulled over by the police they should keep their hands in sight not reach quickly for anything, especially into the glove box where the police officer can't see what you're reaching for. And then, and to say, yes, sir, no, sir. Is that like, is that like somehow like being punked? I'm not going to be punked by any cop. I'm going to say, I'm not saying yes, sir, no, sir. All of that bristling presupposes a racial motivation on the part of the cop. Just wonder how good an idea it is. If you had to choose one or the other, go out there, don't do any of these extenuating things, and be respectful. 
which is better to say that or I want you to expect there to be somebody with a racially motivated intention, especially law enforcement. You are likely to be brutalized. So you need to be especially careful. I just feel like we've been bombarded with incidents that we discuss like this. And then the facts of each of the individual cases tend to get lost. Starting with Brianna Taylor. It's a tragedy that she was killed. But just, I don't even need to go into it. Just for a second, that and other cases, think about the extenuating variables that were present. And would they or would they not be present in the in the uh, situation that you would be discussing with your own child or that a person would be having with their own child? So I hope I did not offend with that, but I had to get that out. Um, and so uh, I will... Uh, and we'll take a quick break and then because the next thing you have to talk about is kind of long, kind of the way that one was, but I think it's really interesting. So I will be back after this message. Milkman. Welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 28. I'm going to get right into this. Um, there are some political stuff. There is some political stuff I want to talk about before I get into this stuff. Um about the media, I want to talk about the media, and I know I, I well on the media all the time, but it's just because they stink. Um, so, but first, I want to get a couple of other things out of the way. Well, not out of the way, but I'm going to talk about them first. First, three issues that matter to you. I bet I can predict what they are. If you consider yourself a Biden supporter, I bet... The three most important issues to you are COVID, healthcare, and social justice. And if you are a Trump supporter, I bet the three issues that matter most to you are the economy, the Supreme Court, and law and order. Or maybe national security in there somewhere. But here's the difference. I think that in choosing, and I could be wrong. Again, this is just my opinion. I think that people who are the Biden supporters... 10, and, that, and I'm not insulting, I hope I'm not insulting anybody, and I could be wrong, but I think if you're a Biden supporter, chances are you are a Biden supporter first, and then when asked which issues matter most to you, you say COVID, healthcare, and social justice. And I posit that you, you do that because you know those are the three issues that cast Trump in the worst light. I wonder if they're honestly the three issues that actually matter to you. If it was if it was not an election season and it was the middle of, uh, I don't know, any given year other than that, and you're going about your life, are you? I mean, and I understand COVID is a big one. Everyone's living with COVID and, and it is a big deal. But I just wonder how much it relates to who's president. The whole world has COVID. It could not have been stopped. And I wonder how much better it could have been managed. Because whenever Biden is asked about it and what he would do differently, he just says he didn't handle it, didn't handle it well. Lots of people are dead because he didn't handle it well. But how? But I've already talked about that, so I'm not going to get that much further into that. But I feel like when it comes to the Trump supporters, these tend to be the things that they would ordinarily care about. They see people rioting. And, and I think everyone, not everyone, but I bet most people have had to have at least a thought, what happens if those mobs come to my neighborhood? 
I know a guy that had to had to take all he was he was repainting the floor of his garage and he had to, and all of his stuff was out in the yard and they were having you know Antifa was rumored to be marching or Black Lives Matter was rumored to be marching on a nearby street at least in the city and and they took the precautionary measure of putting all of their stuff in someone else's garage just in case now that's that's a particular case but I, I but just to have have you had the thought at some point and that's a that's an issue that I think exists irrelevant of who's president although I mean it is a state's issue but I just don't um I don't see people deciding who they want and then choosing to worry about that. The economy. I think that is a constant. Actually, I think that's the one that everybody cares about most. But they're not going to say it because it, Trump, Biden supporters are less likely to list it as one of their top three issues because it ends up playing to Trump's favor. Because we had one of the best economies we've ever had in the history of the country before COVID. And then the Supreme Court is something whenever there's a vacancy... Both sides usually care deeply about it. The people who are pro-choice want to make sure that there's a liberal justice or, or a, a, a democratic or liberal president appointing a liberal justice. And conservatives tend to want a, a Republican president appointing a more conservative justice. But for some reason, I guess, and even in the midst of this open seat, liberals don't care about that as much as COVID healthcare and social justice. Uh, maybe they do. Maybe that should be one of them. But I really haven't heard that much about it. And and get, getting back to the media, I feel like the media is projecting these three things as the most important thing people care about. They they generalize to everyone. Everyone cares most about COVID, healthcare, and social justice because they know those cast Trump in a lesser light. So that is what I have to say about that. Um. Now, uh, on the campaign stump, I heard, I was watching the news, and they showed a clip. Kamala Harris has come out and called Trump an outright racist. And she said, do I think Do I think he's a racist? Yeah, yeah, I do think he's a racist. And I'm not surprised. I mean, I don't think we've had, according to the media, I don't think we've had a non-racist Republican presidential candidate in my pretty much my whole lifetime. I can't remember a single Republican candidate that wasn't cast as a racist. Is it possible that every single Republican candidate was a racist? Or could it be that that is something that the left tries to portray them as? But as I reflect on the Democratic primary campaigns, according to Kamala Harris, being a racist can apparently be quickly forgiven. Apparently it's not that big of a deal. And in a sense, she's undermining the the strength of the accusation because she forgives it so quickly. And if I'm not mistaken, if I recall correctly, she called her own running mate, the one and only old Joe Biden, a racist uh, for working to defeat the passage of federally forced busing. Back in the day, she was that little girl, if you don't remember. So I feel like I need to keep that in perspective. But I do also see why she calls Donald Trump a racist. She's not his running mate. Joe Biden is her running mate now, so he he must not be a racist. 
anymore. At least once she said it about Joe, she had a reason that she could cite. Okay, that's that. Now, um, I noticed that Joe Biden has made this announcement that the, the Pennsylvania Boilermakers have endorsed him. When he was on the stump, he was he came right out and said, the Pennsylvania Boilermakers Union endorsed him. And then later on, oh, he said it at the town hall meeting with George Stephanopoulos. And then later on, the the president of that, that particular Boilermaker, Boilermakers Union that he spoke at once, that they wrote a letter that said, no, they about a month ago, they, they endorsed Donald Trump. So that particular chapter of the Boilermakers Union didn't endorse him, and the, the, the larger national Pennsylvania Boilermakers Union did, hasn't endorsed anyone. I, I have not seen that fact-checked. I have not seen him called a liar. I have not seen him given Pinocchios. But it does say something, that, that major unions and major law enforcement unions do not back the Democrats in this election. That, that's an indicator to me of things to come. Uh, another item. Um, I noticed that when Dr. Fauci was interviewed on 60 Minutes, he was pretty explicit about saying that he is against new COVID lockdowns, even if the epidemic gets worse. He was asked how bad it would have to get. They said, how bad would it have to get in order for you to recommend new lockdowns? And Fauci said, it would have to get really, really bad. He said, quote, first of all, the country is fatigued with the restrictions. So that's one of the reasons why he says that there should not be lockdowns, because the country is fatigued. Now, I agree the country is fatigued, but my question is, why does that matter? How is that related at all to science? How fatigued or tired of something people are, I would think, should not come into play. I'd be like saying, you know, I'm, I'm really, really tired of taking my, my heart medicine, so I'm not going to take it. The doctor would be like, you know what? Yeah, you should stop taking it. I, I can tell that you're very fatigued by taking it. You don't like it. That's that's not scientific. I would think that how fatigued we are would be irrelevant if he's following the science. Or if that is a consideration, then it is not purely science anymore. It's science kind of plus politics. And so I wonder if he's recognizing that that is obviously something he needs to start considering now instead of just purely the science in black and white. Because what happened to following the science? Now, again, I happen to agree with him. But, you know, I, I don't, and, and now he's kind of being excoriated by the left for saying that. He's supposed to just follow the science. Now he's not really scientific anymore because of that. So anyway, he, he, he actually said, put shutdowns away. This is a quote. Put shutdowns away and let's use public health measures to get where we want to go. Put shutdowns away, he said, quote unquote. So now who are the, who are the Trump haters and the Trump COVID blamers going to cite now? They've used Fauci because he's kind of been at odds with Trump during this time because he has kind of been black and white about the science, which is inconclusive. We don't know whether or not masks really work. We don't make other people feel good, and it's got to do something. 
but we know that it we don't know how that it could save a hundred thousand lives like joe biden said at the debate so that was an interesting change i think in fauci's approach to this and i think it's a much more realistic approach because i think we do really need to get through it but that is again just one man walking in the world's opinion um there was also something that well th- this uh resonated with me during the debate it was when, when and i think it was one of trump's better moments when he said uh who built the cages joe joe who built the cages and then we're of course talking about immigration and the situation at the border where you know quote-unquote families were coming across the border and it's a crime when you do that just like dwi is a crime and just like if you were to get pulled over and and charged with dwi and you had children in the car you would be separated from your children there would be a cage between you two now i, I i've listened a lot to tom homan H-O-M-A-N. If you don't know who he is, he's the, I think he's the former director of ICE, or maybe he is still currently the deputy director of ICE, something like that. Um, and he was talking about how these cages, not, not only were these cages, quote unquote cages, they're not cages, first of all. They do restrict movement and they are made of metal and chain link. So I guess they are cages. Um, but they were originally constructed by the by the obama biden administration and I, and i'm not saying that because it's their fault I'm, I'm just pointing that out for people who try to say that trump because he's a racist built cages but i'm also saying that they were necessary that the obama biden administration did it because it was prudent you couldn't just leave children in the midst of other unrelated adults Right, and they and their their parents were being charged with a crime, so they were going to be in jail. You couldn't put the children in jail with their parents and other people. So if you actually dig into it and look at it, you see that a, a whole bunch of that was just a bunch of hype. And I think they thought they had a great photo op when they took that picture of the cages. Everyone can probably remember the picture, and they probably loved seeing that it was. Uh, a, a per, you know, great evidence of how racist the Republican administrations are. Then it turned out that it was they were built in 2014 by the Obama administration with this same deputy director of Vice, Tom Oman. And even he was defending the Obama administration, saying these were cages built by them, yes, but they were necessary. So I wanted to get that out, and now I have. Um, I will take one more quick break before I continue. I promise this will be a quick one, but then I'm going to get into my major uh, critique of the national news media. And I'll be back after this moment. Hello and welcome as always back to Sam Walking in the World. This is episode 28. I think I'm on fire today. Um, Or not. Maybe I'm bombing, I guess. Depends on you. But now, the media. This is what I believe is going to happen. And I could be wrong, and we'll talk about it after the election. But I think I'm right. I think I'm right. I think this election is going to be just like in 2016. Not that it will do any good. But 
I think that this election is going to be a reality check to the media, an even bigger reality check than it was in 2016. They won't adjust to the real reality, but it, it they are so, so worked up, even more than in 2016, that I think that they're coming face-to-face with the reality will be an even greater shock to their collective system. And I think it's going to be sent by conservative Americans. And like I said before, I don't think, I don't think that people uh, change their mind and that a whole bunch of people are convinced of ideas that they didn't already have. I think it's turnout. I think turnout is going to be what ends up deciding this election, like I think it decides all elections. But it's going to be a way for conservative Americans to say to the major media that their narrative is not the one that exists in the world. Now, I know that that to some degree there are people who believe strongly in the ideas of the left, in agreement with the media. But the part that is being denied is the other side. It's as though it doesn't exist. It's as though it's a bunch of people on the lunatic fringe, which there is a lunatic fringe on the right. But but the, if the major media narrative is that that is all that exists on the right. And that is it is overwhelmingly, according to polls, it is overwhelming, overwhelmingly overshadowed by the left. Now, the left controls, I would have to say, 90% of the major news media. Now, most people wouldn't agree with that because they see the major news media 90% of the time. That's why they're not able to recognize that it is their side that is represented. I said a, a while ago in a previous episode that people just pick up the whole p- political spectrum and move it so that they appear to be in the middle. That is what the, the news media does. CNN, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, The Washington Post, The New York Times, NPR. NPR didn't even cover the Hunter Biden story. Taxpayer news outlet. We all pay for. And they, they didn't even consider it newsworthy. At least to debunk it, to go into the details of it and debunk it. They just said, we're not wasting our time with something that's not a story. How do you know it's not a story until you investigate it? People were saying, well, there's no proof of that. Leslie Stahl was interviewing Trump, and he said, why aren't you looking into that? And she said, there's no evidence. Isn't it part of an an investigative journalist's job to find out if there's evidence? Or do they just wait to see what other people say and go, no, there's no evidence. There's no evidence yet. But there is circumstantial evidence. Anyway, I don't want to get out and uh, tangent. But th- this is a phenomenon I've recognized it, is that they all, the left, especially the media, tend to consider Trump the devil. Now, I could be overstating that a little bit. Maybe they don't think he's actually Satan. He lives in the underworld with Cerberus. But just, I, I feel like they do. They th- kind of think of him as the devil. Many have even said it. And they also, they want to eradicate Fox News. It cracks me up when they talk about how right-wing Fox News is. Now, not that it isn't right-wing. It is. 
But it cracks me up that they recognize that Fox News is right wing, but they don't recognize that MSNBC or, or, or CNBC or NBC or ABC or CBS are left wing. That's just the middle. And, and Fox is way out to the right. But they want to eradicate Fox because it advocates for Trump, which it does pretty openly. But what does it say? So, so think about it. The Fox News advocates for Trump, and Trump is the devil. Fox News is the devil's advocate. Left wants to eliminate the devil's advocate. Even if they don't agree with it, isn't it still important to have someone play the devil's advocate? To test your own argument? To have it not just be presupposed to be true? That it is based on something arguable? And, and, you, and how would you test it? You would argue against the devil's advocate. But they want to eliminate the devil's advocate. Like For, for example, the media covered the Ukraine phone call that Trump made to, I forget the guy's name, the president of Ukraine. And that was the whole purpose for impeachment. Because he was trying to gain some kind of personal favor from the from the Ukrainian president in exchange for something. But they completely ignored the Hunter Biden influence peddling scandal. They covered one completely to the point where it was a, a reason for impeachment and the other one they completely ignored. That's the stuff that drives conservative Americans to the polls. And when Republicans win elections, it is an infuriating reminder to liberals that Americans are free to interpret events through a lens besides Siena. They melted down in 2016, and should Trump win again on November 4th, 2020, which in their minds is not even within the realm of possibility. It's almost like a child not wanting to believe something so bad that they have become almost wholly convinced. But you know they're not all the way convinced because they're really angry. You know, if you're sure something is going to happen, like like 10 o'clock will follow 9, you don't really have to get upset about it. You just know it. And while, while the left and the media especially says they're sure Trump is going to lose, they're still very angry about it. They're, they're, they're upset. They're not calm about it. That leads me to believe that maybe they're not quite sure. And, then, and that they are trying to convince themselves. They are trying to convince themselves. Um, and I think this is why I think that the left, at least in this political climate, is prone to autocracy. Say that again. I think the left is prone to autocracy. And the reason is because they don't want there to be a group of people who form a reality inconsistent with theirs. And rather than winning at the ballot box, which if they lose again, they won't be winning at the ballot box. And they won't kind of be, be winning the battle of ideas. People talk about the arena of ideas. That's where we sort things out so we don't have to have physical violence. And and if you lose and you're not your your side is not the majority, you have to live with the consequences. The elections have consequences. We don't take up arms. We don't spy on the other campaign to try and try and get them impeached through something nefarious. Just because we happen to believe we're right and they're wrong, ideologically. So I think they're prone to autocracy because if they can't win at the ballot box, 
they have to do something to be able to control what is considered by the majority to be reality. I've said it before, I'll say it again. That is how fascism happens. We can't stand that you think this thing because you're so wrong. And even if that person is wrong or that group of people is wrong, the way to change the, the, the way to change their mind is not with a gun. It's in the arena of ideas, which the left continues, it has continued to lose, and I think will continue to lose. My prediction is that when Trump wins, they, their faces will slide off their heads. It is, to me, the most enjoyable hour, or not hour, but day of news watching. Is the day after a Republican wins a presidential election, I watch CNN, MSNBC all day long. And usually I get called a racist. They, they, they call the people who elected the, the Republican president racist. What does it say about how racist America is? Again, they continue to fool themselves. They paper over the reality that they just don't want to, to be in existence. And it, it never works either. This is kind of a, a philosophical point. Is, that, is I, I'm not sure what philosophers said it, but truth will out. The truth will always come out. No matter how badly one side or another or one person or another wants something to be true or wants to deny something that's true, it will emerge on its own. It is self-evident. And it has the strength to demonstrate itself. Truth does. So only, you know, I think another person that, that I recall saying, only God can make a truth. Truth is truth. Whether it's the truth about how many people believe a certain philosophy or or anything. And I think the truth will out. Not that the, the, the Republicans or conservatives are necessarily right about everything, but just that they exist. That they believe these things. And that enough of them believe these things to determine an election. That it isn't simply racism. That is what I have to say about that. Thank you very much for letting me get that out. Um, and I think I've said enough for today. Um, there's a few things I didn't get to that I will leave in the hopper, and I will get to them next time. But thank you, as always, for listening. It has been a pleasure. This is Sam walking in the world saying goodbye. My sincere apologies. This is episode 29, even though I mistakenly refer to it as episode 28 in my opening. Again, this is episode 29, and I apologize for that mistake. My sincere apologies. This is episode 29, even though I mistakenly refer to it as episode 28 in my opening. Again, this is episode 29. And I apologize for that mistake.